Good morning. Uh, like Taylor, I forgot to introduce myself earlier. So uh, my name is Brian, um, Brian Beattie. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, I'm so thankful for Chris. Chris has led the past two weeks. Can we uh, thank the Lord for him? Yeah, thankful to have Chris and the team. And uh, believe it or not, we give pastors time off around here. So uh, I was away at a conference last week. Uh, Todd and his family are away on vacation now. Jeff and his family just came back from uh, their daughter getting married, so I'm sure that was amazing. I haven't heard about it yet, but I need to hear about that. And then we had our youth pastor start this past week. Will's started, so I don't think he's in here, right? But Yeah, so so thankful for the opportunity to serve on this pastoral team. I get to lead uh, the worship and the worship teams here Uh, This morning, thankful for the opportunity to walk through God's Word with you, and uh, next week the real pastor will be back, so you'll just have to bear with it. All right, so we're in week 10 of 11 in our summer series we've called Powerful Prayers of the Bible. Uh, The past few weeks, we've been looking at prayers prayed by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Last week, Todd walked us through Colossians 1, where he talked about uh, a, a prayer for flourishing faith. Uh, Today we'll be in Philippians 1, so you could turn there, and we'll explore a prayer for abounding love, flourishing faith, abounding love. And then next week, Todd is going to wrap up this series, and the following week, we're going to jump back into our study of Hebrews. Remember Hebrews, anybody? We started earlier this year, we stopped in the middle, we're going to pick it up for the remainder of the year, but that comes in two weeks, okay? So this morning, in our time in Philippians 1... We're going to look at a prayer that I believe is worthy of our time and attention. And honestly, I just feel completely dependent this morning, and I need you to pray that the Spirit of God would speak to you because I am far too insufficient to impart anything good to you this morning. Okay? We need the Spirit of God to shape our hearts through the Word of God as we gather as the people of God. So let's pray and ask Him to do that. Spirit, we open our arms and our hearts to you tonight, or not not tonight, today. See, that's how well this is going to go apart from your strength. We open our hearts to you this morning, and we just ask that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, do a work that is beyond um, a a 30-minute talk. Would you do a, a deep, significant, transformative work in each of our hearts this morning? As we've just sung of the gospel and partaken of the gospel Would you root that gospel deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts so that it would change us? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, I put a little outline in the bulletin. This is a prayer of thankful thankful joy, a prayer with affection, and a prayer for abounding love. So let's pick it up in Philippians 1, starting in verse 3. Paul, writing this, says, I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. So picture in your mind, Paul in prison, uh, possibly a house arrest, and he sits down to write this letter to the church at Philippi. And as he begins to think about these Christians, the, 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 the people he knew that sat over here, that sat over there, that gathered over there, He is overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy in his heart. Thankfulness and joy come together and collide, and they explode into thankful 
joy to God. So why? Why is Paul thankful and why is he so joyful when he thinks about these Christians? Well, verse 5 tells us, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul, writing this letter to these Christians, is praying for his gospel partners, people who had served with him, people who had supported and strengthened his ministry in the past, and people who continue to serve, support, and strengthen him in the present. Paul references the first day, which you could read about the first day of this church in Acts chapter 16, if you want to do that later, where Lydia is converted to Jesus through Paul's ministry. Lydia was the first Christian in the church at Philippi, and immediately upon her conversion, she provides Paul with a place to stay. Him and his team, she says, come stay at my house. From that first day until now, Paul is saying. So the Apostle Paul had a long-time relationship with this church. For about 10 years to this point, they had been partnering together in ministry. And Paul sheds more light onto this partnership a few chapters later in Philippians, Philippians 4, when he writes, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, which is another way to say from the first day, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So this church that he's writing to didn't just partner with him when he was present with them. Their partnership continued while he was away. Paul had a rich, deep history with these Christians at Philippi. They had a massive impact on him personally and in their ministry collectively. For a decade, 10 years, they had been gospel partners. They served him practically, encouraged him relationally, supported him financially, and prayed for him persistently. So upon Paul's remembrance of these people in this church, he bursts forth in thankful joy to God. Now, not to get sappy here, but I will. But when I was reading this this week, it reminded me of you. I knew I was going to be sappy. I didn't know I was going to get stirred. Uh, it reminded me of you, the way that I've seen so many of you care for one another. My goodness. In real time, practical needs. Oh, my gosh. Right, the way you love and serve one another, uh, honestly, it's extraordinary. I've never seen a church, I've never been part of a church like Melanie Park, but Paul had. So I'm just drawn in thankful joy to God for what I see in you. Serving one another, praying persistently, so many of you for the Melanie Park pastors, missionaries, ministry leaders, and the way you give financially to support the work of the gospel here in Lubbock and beyond is just frankly incredible. Uh, over the past six weeks, I had an opportunity to be part of, have you heard of Dave Ramsey, uh, Financial Peace University? Well, Ramsey Solutions was offering this class to pastors for free. And since I'm a pastor and I like free, I signed up for it. <laughs> so for six weeks, I was in a group with five or six other pastors, and just hearing their stories was heartbreaking. 
man, Todd, you got to come back, man. This is not going <laughs> to, this is not going to end well. Just literally, they were asking questions like, how can I get my church to give more? They were sharing stories about just loads and loads of debt that their church had and budget deficits and having to cut staff due to shortfalls, uh, due to lack of giving. And just listening to all these stories, I was like, that sounds nothing like my church. So generous, so joyful in your giving for the work of the gospel here and all over the world. I'm going to move on or else it's going to last a while. All right, so because in all these ways, giving, financially, supporting, praying, the church at Philippi was doing this for, for Paul, you all are doing this with one another. We are gospels together in, we are partners together in gospel ministry. All right, let's move on. But it's not a partnership that's centered on us. This is why Paul is thankful to God. It's not centered on us. It's a partnership that's grounded in God and the work that he is doing in us. So look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he, God, will begin a good work in you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul has great confidence in the fact that God is totally committed to the people that he loves. Paul is essentially saying that I have been and continue to be 100% certain that God always finishes what he starts. Paul says he will do it. Absolute confidence. And notice that the work God will complete in us is not a work for us, but it's a work in us. Paul's talking about an internal, deep, transformative heart work here. Now, there's no doubt that God has done work for us, right? right we've just talked about it all morning. He's rescued us, he's forgiven our sins, he's imputed his righteousness. There are countless ways that God has worked for us in the gospel, but this is not what Paul's pointing out here. What we see here is a work God is doing in us. I heard John Piper say once that, that God's work is not like inoculation. It's not like, here, take this shot and be on your way. It's not a one and done deal. God's work in us is more like dialysis, a very personal process in which God gets his resources inside of us as he pulls out the toxins from us. God stays actively and intimately involved in our continual inward transformation. He cares about us that deeply. So God does a work in us, but at the same time, we're not passive in this process, right? A few verses later in Philippians 2, Paul would, Paul would say that um, to, to work out your own salvation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works in us, and we work out what he's been working in us. That's how heart transformation works. Our work that we do is the overflow of what God is already working into us. So Paul is making the point here in Philippians 1 that God will complete this work he began. And he'll complete it at the day of Christ. A day in the future when Jesus brings all of redemptive history 
to its culmination on the day of Christ. But in the meantime, until that day, we can live in absolute confidence that God always completes what he begins. Say always. Always. He always completes what he begins. Our powerful yet personal God promises to stay at work in his people until the very end. So Paul's prayer is one of thankful joy for those he has partnered with in ministry. And this prayer is grounded in 100% confidence that God completes the work he starts. Gospel partnership produces thankful joy. And gospel partnership also produces a heart of affection for God's people. Look at verse 7. This is a prayer with affection. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense in confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So did I miss something here? Is this a romantic poet writing these verses, talking about his feelings, right? Who likes to talk about their feelings? I certainly don't, though apparently I'm very feeling-oriented whenever I stand in front of you. Um, These verses, this can't be the great theologically-minded apostle Paul, can it? Look what he says, "I, I feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you. I long for you with affection. I love how the Bible just often blows up the categories that we set for how we think the world's supposed to work, right? We often distinguish between thinking and feeling. You know, if you've ever taken a Myers-Briggs personality assessment, anyone ever taken a Myers-Briggs? If you've done that, you've been categorized as either a T or an F. When it comes to uh, the way you make decisions, you're either a thinker or a feeler. Any thinkers in here with me? Yeah, any feelers? Oh, wow. Cool. So if you care, I'm an INTJ, okay, if you need to categorize me in some way. I'm an INTJ. (laughs) But the Bible, as opposed to Myers-Briggs, doesn't force us to hold thinking, thinking and feeling at odds. The Bible encourages us to grow more deeply in both. As God works in us, we grow to be deeper thinkers who love theology, who think through all the implications of the gospel for everyday life, who consider all the nuances of of how we live as gospel-centered Christians in the world today. As God works in us, we deepen in our thinking. And as God works in us, We grow deeper in our feeling. We become people who more and more engage our emotions in response to God, who express affection and desire and yearning for God and one one another. When Jesus enters inside of us, if you're a Christian, you've experienced this, he starts to change everything, right? There's no area of your life that he is not seeking to pursue and to affect, and to make more like him. Jesus, the one who embodied the perfect combination of truth and spirit, head and heart, 
thinking and feeling, that Jesus, when he comes into us, he, chains, he changes everything about us. Because notice, where does this affection come from that Paul references? Verse 8, he says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. So this is literally affection from the bowels of Christ, from the deepest parts of who he is, flow depths of yearning and longing and feeling that none of us have ever experienced. There is divinely deep affection in the heart of Jesus for you. And this affection, if we're in Christ, will time over time, time after time, slowly but surely, begin to overflow in us as well. So why does Paul feel this way about these Christians? Well, verse 7 gives us the ground. He says, for you are all partakers with me of grace. The reason Paul is so affectionate for this group of Christians is because they've experienced something together that is absolutely transformative. They've experienced the grace of God. God's grace has been imparted to them, and they've partaken of the grace of God. He and they, you and I, we are partakers of God's grace. A grace that, as we just sung, leads the sinner home, that reaches far and wide, a grace that we cannot explain. God has done a work in us that is absolutely unmerited. We have done nothing to attain it. We can do nothing to retain it. All of life, everything we are, everything we have, is a gift of grace from God himself. So let me, let me ask you a question. We'll do some application at the end, but, I, but I, I feel I want to ask this question here. Are you drawn to other believers with yearning and longing and affection? Or are you drawn away from other believers because they annoy you or frustrate you, right? The answer is probably both. Um, those who God is at work in will over time grow in deeper affection for God's people. We grow in love for fellow partakers of grace. All right, so Paul's bringing us to a point where we see that a life filled with thankful joy in God and a life flowing with affection for God's people is possible. Okay, so if, like Paul, if that's the case, what do you pray for the people you love? What do I pray for you? What do you pray for me? What do we pray for one another? Paul gives us the answer in verse 9. Here's Paul's prayer for abounding love. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So this is a prayer from love for love. And the image here of abound is to, to run over like a river. You know, we don't get that image here because our rivers don't abound. They dry out, right? But in other parts of the world, when it rains, rivers fill up and they overflow. That's the image here of abounding, to overflow like a river or to overflow like a cup. Paul is praying for these Christians that your love would overflow and never stop overflowing, 
And notice that Paul doesn't distinguish between if it's love for God or love for people. He just says, I pray that your love for both may abound. Because as we know from the great commandment, you can't separate love of God and love of people. They go together. So Paul is praying that their love would abound. But, but how? How does love abound? Well, he prays that their love would abound with knowledge and all discernment. So this is, a, this is not a, a sappy, fluffy puppy love. This is a knowledge-filled love. This is a love with discernment that's insightful and understanding. This is a knowledge-filled, insightful, understanding love that Paul's praying overflows in their hearts. So I couldn't bring in a river, but I've got the next best thing. I've got a cup, all right? So this is, this is our love cup. So what Paul is showing here, how does our love overflow? Well, it's filled with knowledge, right? So this is knowledge of God, knowledge of the gospel. The more we learn and know and grow in our knowledge of God, our love cup gets filled and starts to overflow. But it's not just that. It's also discernment, insightful wise, deep love. So the image here, do you see it? Do I need to keep going before we have to bring in the, the cleanup crew? Paul is saying the way that our love abounds is when it's filled with knowledge of God and the gospel, and it's filled with insight into who we are and who other people are in light of God and the gospel. This is kind of fun. Love <laughs> abounds with wisdom with knowledge and all discernment, okay? That's the image. I don't know if that's helpful, but there it is. So when knowledge and discernment are poured into our hearts, our love overflows. And it overflows into every area of life. Look, there's not one area of this container that's not affected. Knowledge, discernment, overflowing love, it affects the environments around us. Specifically, this knowledge-filled, insightful love overflows into how we view our life in Christ and how we live our life in Christ. So look at verse 9. Paul strings together as the deep thinker that he is. He's already expressed his feeling. Now he's expressing his thinking. He streams together a wonderful strain of logic. Okay, so let's follow this logic here together. So he says, I pray that your love may abound. How? We just saw when it's filled with knowledge and discernment, verse 10, why? So that you may approve what is excellent. So it changes the way that we view our life. You may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. So it changes the way that we live our lives. You may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you see the logical flow in there? And I helped you by boldening, boldening the, uh, some of those words there. So starting, starting with verse 10, let's unpack this. So knowledge-filled, insightful, overflowing love affects how you view your life in Christ. Paul says, verse 10, you learn to approve what is excellent. You approve what is excellent. Christ's desire for his people is not that they simply know what's right and wrong. 
or that we do good and avoid bad. His desire is that we discover what is best, that we approve what is most excellent. Now, I fear that Christians too often are, are too narrow in our focus. We think in terms of right and wrong, good and bad. Do this, don't do that. When all the while, Jesus is inviting us into a completely different realm of thinking and living. I don't know if you know this, but morality is not our aim. Morality is not our aim. Christ-likeness is what we're after. And God's grace, as he works it in us, leads us to discover a far more excellent way. So abounding love affects how we view our life in Christ, but it also affects how we live our life in Christ. And Paul lays out two examples of this. Back half of verse 10, he says, And so be, so we become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So here's where we get into, Todd was talking about it last week, the already not yet of our lives in Christ, right? Between the two days of Christ, when he came as a baby to live and die in our place for our sins, between that day and between the day that he'll return to make all things new, between those two days, we now find ourselves both pure and blameless now and becoming pure and blameless with a view towards that day. So you, in Christ, are pure and blameless now and are becoming pure and blameless for that day. If you're new to church or new to uh, Christianity, welcome to the party. This is how we operate. Things make no sense, yet somehow the Spirit makes it real to us. So this is, this is how our lives in Christ look. God in Christ has already declared us pure and blameless. Positionally, we've been declared pure, blameless through the work of Christ on the cross. But this declaration is now working itself out observably as God works in us progressively. So I can't see your position before Christ, only he can, but I can see the way that he's growing so many of you to become more pure and more blameless, which is another way to say without stumble, over time. Slowly but surely, we're growing in purity and our ability to stumble less and less, and when we do stumble, to reach out for help right away. As those who are pure and blameless positionally, our lives are now a grace-enabled pursuit to become more and more who we already are. Since we are pure, we can increasingly become people who live pure, right? You can't live pure if you've not been declared pure. And the way we learn to live in purity is by confessing sin, repenting of sin, fighting sin, fleeing sin. We can increasingly become the pure people that we already are. And since we already are blameless, we've been declared so by God when Jesus took my blame upon himself. Since we are blameless, we can increasingly stumble forward slowly but surely learning to live less and less in the patterns of our past and walk more and more in the rhythms of righteousness today. And we do that 
We walk in this way with a view towards that day. A day that each one of us who are in Christ will see him face to face. Where we'll be finally and forever and fully transformed into the person we've been increasingly becoming all along. And what a day that's going to be. All right, so let's continue on. Love abounds more and more as it's filled with knowledge and discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's one more result Paul lays out here. We're not only becoming who we already are, we're also learning to live in complete dependence upon Christ. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice Paul's words here. They're very intentional. He prays that we are filled, not empty, not half full, but filled. Christ's desire for us is to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, not works of righteousness, fruit of righteousness. And that is key. Fruit is something that grows, right? Works are something that are achieved. And this fruit of righteousness comes, what's the word say? Through Christ himself. This fruit is a natural outcome of God's life worked into us. And it's fruit that grows through abiding. So if I was to say, fruit, Jesus, what passage would you go to? John 15, right? So let's take a look. Verse 4 and 5. Someone say something different. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll look at that after. But John 15 now. Okay, so Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Has anyone heard this before? As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we're attached to Jesus by faith, we bear fruit through him of righteousness. As we learn to live in deeper dependence connected to Christ in the daily flow of life, he floods us with abounding love, he forms us into the people we're becoming, and he fills us with fruit that can only grow through him. And what's the ultimate end of all this? Well, Paul ends his prayer where everything in the universe will end, to the praise and glory of God. God's glory, which is his beauty, his magnificence, his worth. God's glory is seen through this process that we've just looked at. And we respond to his glory with praise. We praise his glory. Our triune God has done everything necessary to do this incredible transformative work in us. And he gets the glory for it all. So in Philippians 1, the verses we've just looked at, it all comes full circle. Every part of this prayer we just looked at from the beginning where Paul is filled with thankful joy in God to verse 6 where it's all about God completing the work he's promised to do 
into verse 8 where we get a glimpse of Christ's affection for us, and through every logical step of verse 9 through 11, every part of this prayer has been all about God and his gospel and his glory. So as the band starts to come up, um, just by way of application, I want to share a a few possible ways that the Spirit might be leading you to respond. If he's leading you in another way, ignore these four ways. But these are just four ways that came to mind. And I want to use the title of the sermon, the title of the sermon to kind of frame this out. So prayer, partners, partakers, and praise. How might you respond? Well, first, prayer. Some of you may be urged, may be led to spend time this week praying verse 9 through 11 for all the people that you love. Sit down to pray with the Lord, and whoever comes to mind, a gospel partner, a partaker in grace, pray these verses for those people. Ask that their love would overflow more and more and more. And I wonder what might result if if you, a handful of you, prayed that for me, and if I prayed that for a dozen of you, I wonder what the Lord might do in our hearts as he makes this prayer a reality in each of our lives. So first, prayer. Second, partners. Partners. Perhaps the Lord has or is uh, putting someone on your heart to serve, support, and strengthen as a gospel partner. Maybe it's serving people in this church by showing hospitality to somebody new or caring for someone who's sick or loving on someone who's struggling. Or maybe it's supporting a missionary financially. We've got Three people who are in the process, I think three, right? Is that correct? Three people who are in the process of raising support. So we've got Claire, we've got Meredith, and we've got Bruce and Stephanie. So maybe the Lord is calling you to give a a big one-time gift or a small one-time gift to one of our missionaries or commit to supporting them monthly or maybe just get on their prayer letter so you know how to pray for them. Prayer, partners. For those in Christ, that's the invitation to pray for the people we love, to partner with one another in ministry. Third, partakers. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we are incredibly thankful that you're here, and we pray that he's doing a work in you that you won't be able to take credit for. Um, If you haven't partaken of God's grace, if you're still trying to earn a favor that you've already been given, uh, we'd invite you to respond today by doing nothing, by giving nothing. The only thing you're called to do is receive everything that God has for you freely. Receive his free gift of grace for you so that he can begin that transformative work in you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, give him your heart today. Surrender your will and your desires to him. Admit your need. Trust that he's the answer. If you have questions on that, talk to anyone around here. They would love to help you walk through that. So, Prayer, partners, partakers, lastly, praise, praise. We're going to close in a song that essentially sums up everything we've unpacked in this prayer together. It's called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And you'll hear echoes of Philippians 1 in this song. So as we sing together, let's lift our voices to the glory and praise of God and allow your heart to burst forth in thankful joy to him for all that he's done for us. Let's sing together. Let's stand together.